Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. I'm Anthony Bourdain, and you're listening to The Trip, a new podcast from my partners at Roads and Kingdoms. The Trip is your passport to all things weirder, deeper, further. Each episode, a different Roads and Kingdoms contributor will take you behind the scenes of a reporting trip somewhere in the world with host Nathan Thornburg from Roads and Kingdoms. Now Nathan talks to Mitch Moxley about his trip to Havana in pursuit of a legendary porn star named Superman. The trip. Get ready for the ride. Just want you to do a dramatic reading of of uh, oh, this is my favorite, and it comes so early in the piece. Um, the whole whole paragraph, or just the uh... just the highlighted part. So you just want me to say this yeah. a couple times? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the man with the sleepy eyes, male 40s, handsome, tall, with a penis from here to the corner. Three more times? <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's just say that. Um, I'll do one more and then you guys can choose. This is great. This is how we know we're going to talk about penises a yeah. lot today. All right, so when was the first time you heard about Superman of Havana? There was very little known about him. He had been fictionalized in The Godfather Part Two. There's a scene in Havana where Al Pacino's character finds out that his brother, Fredo, uh, is betraying him. And while that scene is happening on stage, there's this performance. Everybody stands, but it's worth it. And a guy comes out and he um, opens his robe and I think it cuts, you know, it cuts before they show anything. Somebody, you know, mentions that thing, like, you know, mentions the guy saying, is that real? Fredo says, that ain't no fake, that's real. That's why they call him Superman. I read an article in Vanity Fair. It was an oral history of the Tropicana that's been around since, I don't know, the 40s, I guess, or even earlier than that, maybe. It's the one with the, like, the crazy dance review with the giant, like, plumage. Exactly, And the yeah. pasties yeah. and the... Very ex- extravagant, you know, basically, you know, nude women. And it was a, you know, go-to place back in the back in the day when Havana was sort of, like, the destination of choice for rich Americans. And in that oral history, somebody mentioned this uh, person who went by the name Superman. And... All that was mentioned about him was that he was the star of a sex show at a club called the Shanghai Club, um, which was in Chinatown in Havana. This passage mentioned that he had a 15-inch endowment, and uh, he supposedly went home with Marlon Brando. Brando went to see one of his shows Brando was apparently bisexual, and he, he liked the look of uh, Superman, and he ditched the, you know, the woman that he had brought and left with Superman. If you lived in the States and you knew anything about Cuba, you had heard of Superman. 
And it was one of the things that people did when they went there. You went there to kind of go crazy, to get drunk, to indulge. And one of the things that you did was go to the Shanghai to see the Superman show. But there was a, there seemed to be no photographic evidence of this person. Um, we couldn't find any photos of him, any videos of him, nothing besides sort of like anecdotal evidence of him. You know, he the journalists went down there and wrote about the show. One journalist years later recounted meeting Superman backstage. So he very clearly existed, but there was sort of scant evidence of him. Like we didn't know what he looked like other than the fact that he had a massive dick. Yeah, that's a that's a tough census to run on like 70-year-old uh, Cubans right. in Havana. Of course. And then the other thing is that you know, after the revolution, this stuff just didn't get talked about a lot. He uh you know, that was sort of an embarrassment. It was considered sort of a stain on history. The story of of Superman um, was essentially that he had disappeared. It was January of 2015, and in December, Obama had just normalized relations with Cuba, and we wanted to kind of get down there before the flood of foreign reporters went down there. Down there with Mike Majors, photographer. And Mike was like, we have to do this story. We have to find Superman, I think he said. Siento un reclamo bien dentro, un latido profundo. And then when we got there, our first interview was with a, a person who was researching a book on 1950s Havana um, named Alfredo Pietro. Alfredo, he, as soon as he heard that we were doing a story on Superman, like you could see his kind of eyes raise. And we went to his back, uh, his room in his office, and he just chain smoked cigarettes. And he's like, what do you want to know about Superman? And he was really curious about like Superman had been a sort of fascination for him as well. And so the, the, these two, uh, you know, foreign journalists coming in and be like, you know, looking around, digging around for a story on, on Superman. He was really surprised because he's like, like, I've been waiting 40 years to <laughs> exactly. tell someone about Superman. Exactly. That's exactly what it was like. And um, he really wanted to help us. And he also knew some people who knew Superman from the time. Uh, and he'd interviewed them off the record for his book. So it was still kind of like shameful period in their in their history, even as things were changing in Cuba. And they didn't, you know, Alfredo said he he didn't want to repeat the uh, mistakes of the past. Um, they, you know, he wanted he he wanted to avoid what he called uh, Cancunization of Cuba. So where it'd just be this place where you know f Americans and other foreigners come down there to sort of run amok. Um, this was important to him, and I think he felt that you know understanding what had happened before was really important and people weren't really paying attention. All these, like, fantastic altruistic reasons to find out more about a guy with a huge dick. Yeah. And I think he just was really curious about the dick, too. <laughs> there was some debate about the size. There was. Was it, was it 14 inches, 15, 18? Here to the corner, but what corner? <laughs> exactly. These were important questions that needed to be asked. In this New York Minute, presented by Tiger Beard, Natalie Rabin, the director of the Hundred Gates Project in the Lower East Side, talks about the origins of the public art initiative. In February 2015, I launched 100gates.nyc 
and it had an open call for artists and businesses. And I immediately received a response from a business in Chinatown. The response said, good luck getting the Chinese business owners to sign on to this project. So instead of seeing it as negative, I saw it as positive, and I invited that person in to talk about how they could help me in getting the Chinese business owners to sign on. And it turns out that that was a man named Ricky, and his aunt and uncle owned a Chinese restaurant. And he also has a large affinity for public art and was super excited. So he and his girlfriend acted as translators, knocking on doors of the businesses next door, encouraging the neighbors to get on board. All of this hard work resulted in four murals next door to each other um, at a Vietnamese restaurant and Chinese restaurant and businesses of that nature. Space is limited in New York City, and there's so many artists and creatives, especially clustered in the neighborhood of the Lower East Side. Billy Rohan, who originally came up with the idea, saw these gates as blight covered in graffiti and an opportunity for artists to be able to express themselves as well as the businesses through these collaborations. That was your Tiger Beer, Lower East Side Minute. Now back to the trip. The hunt for the man with the enormous cock continues. You're you're in the back room. He's just eating cigarettes yeah. and telling stories about Superman. Yeah. Where do you go from there? Yeah, so he kind of sent us on our way with this, like, you know, good luck, tell me what you find. I think he was pretty skeptical that we were going to find anything. Um, and then, so then we got introduced to this guy, Willie, who was the documentary filmmaker's uncle, Tio Willie. And Willie was just like a character um, that deserves his own story in a way. Uh, he was um, like in his 50s, um, sort of an aging Lothario. He liked uh, the fancy restaurants in Havana, not that there are that many. So Willie's contact who knew a guy who knew a guy who supposedly knew Superman was a journalist and podiatrist who had an office in Old Havana. This and is so, like what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. Journalist and podiatrist. Exactly. You got to make a living. <laughs> we waited in this guy's lobby while he was working, like literally working on a guy's bunions in the back room and kind of waited around, waited around. He supposedly was going to get this friend of his who knew Superman to come and meet us. We were going to do an interview. So after an hour and a half maybe of waiting, um, the guy comes back and uh, I think he had like a cigar in his mouth as he was doing the work. So he comes to the front room and says that he's not going to meet you. He doesn't want to talk about it. He said he was going to come, but he's changed his mind. He's not going to do it. So we were out of luck. But then Willie walks us across town, and we go to uh, central Havana, and he um, he says he know he has the address of uh, where Superman lives. So he takes us down this little alley, and there's a church at the end and a, a market, and he kind of point, he you know stops at a building and points up, and he's like, this is the, the apartment. And he said he knew somebody who lived next door, and this uh, a, a, an older woman, I guess she would have been in her late 80s or 90s, who was a, a piano teacher. And he rings the bell, and she's there. So she invites us up, and we start asking her questions. She's like, yeah, I knew Superman. He lived right next door. He's a very nice guy. So we have this brief interview with her, and then we go up to the actual like door of the apartment where Superman supposedly lived. And these guys were doing construction work and they're like, nobody's here. 
Um, but the neighbor was there, and the neighbor was this old kook of a man in a you know, white muscle shirt that had long turned brown and stretched. He, had, uh, he was wearing socks, I think, either socks or shoes with the hole, with hole in the toe, so his toes were revealed. And uh, he sits us down in this room, uh, like his one-room kind of house, with his wife on a rocking chair, and the radio is blasting. And we start asking him questions about Superman. He's like, oh, I knew Superman. He was a great guy. They called him La Reina. So this is the other uh, in- like interesting thing that we had learned at this time, is that in Cuba, nobody knew him as Superman. They only knew him as La Reina, the queen. And the reason was because he was gay. And, I mean, this is really interesting that a guy who was the star of the most famous sex show of the time um, was a homosexual. Um, So anyway, he's like, I know Lorena. He was great. He used to have parties next door. Uh, He's like, this is Lorena's chair. And he's showing us this chair that he had borrowed from Superman but never given back. And he talked about how he was, like, into Santeria and used to throw these wild parties. At one point, somebody was, like, peeing in the street outside their place and uh superman like chased him with chased him away with a knife like defending the honor of the neighborhood he kept saying you know he was he was a good man he's a good man and then i asked what happened to him he said i think he moved to the states but he said he came back in in the 80s supposedly had come back to havana and went back to his old neighborhood but after that had completely disappeared i remember you telling me that the last guy that you talked to like the most cuban scene ever you're kind of walking away and he'd been telling you about yeah i knew superman he was a mulatto who lived here yeah, in the yeah, neighborhood yeah. and then as you guys were walking away he's like yelling at you he was a tremendo mulatto you know which is just like <laughs> yeah. such a cuban thing to just shout at the top of your lungs. <laughs> that was a tremendous mulatto <laughs> which i'm really not sure anywhere else on earth that would be like a totally normal thing to shout down the street. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were Mike and I were really kind of like, what is that? I don't think we can use that word. It's, <laughs> it doesn't seem. There's some kind of confluence of like racism, sexism, like all of the isms kind of live in one show when you have a bunch of Americans going down and like, you know, ogling at an Afro-Cuban, whether it's in The Godfather or anywhere else, it's like the terms of description generally tend to be pretty like, I think somebody had written speciesist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, they're, it's just like, well, that's another kind of creature than, yeah. than we are, you know? Right. Um, but that's, I guess, what makes what makes Superman kind of fascinating, too. And also, the idea, you know, the idea of somebody yelling down the street at you, tremendo mulato, you know, like, this is, like, all part of his story somehow. Right. And that somehow he had the respect or forbearance of his neighbors at least who weren't like yeah that guy was a sex worker whatever you know they were like here's a guy who threw parties he defended the neighborhood he you know he was tremendo I know you and I have a, a shared um, obsession with a certain piece of real estate out on the Malecon at the end of Paseo, uh, the Hotel Riviera. Yeah. You know, that thing is like a, a haunted house yeah. uh, of hospitality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the reason that, that I think you love it, the reason that I love it is like it takes you immediately back to, uh, I, you know, it's 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 like, uh, yeah, it's like Al Capone's tomb, you know, you open it up and you're like immediately back in gangster 
era 50s Havana. So so tell me what that feeling is, like what that, you know, paint that picture of, of Havana back in Superman's heyday. Well, it's really, the Riviera is an interesting place to start because, you know, like the Riviera and these vintage cars, um, that era is still, still exists today in this like fossilized form, right? You can see traces of what Havana would have been like in the 50s. I mean, it was a playground, like its nickname was the Horror of the Caribbean. Very famous people went there. Hemingway, I mentioned Brando before, uh, Tennessee Williams went there. It was largely mob run. The mob wanted to build a string of casinos from, you know, Vedado to Veradero. Riviera, in fact, was owned by Meyer Lansky. It was Meyer Lansky's casino. It was a place where conscience takes a holiday. Like, you'd go down there to just, like, get fucked, you know? <laughs> and, like, Superman was very much uh, a part of that, very symbolic of that. And it was kind of, I mean, it was a weird thing because it was also kind of a rich city on some level, or at least it showed its money, maybe in that Miami way, where it's yeah. just, like, a lot of flash. Uh, and then, of course, like, Liberty City is right across the highway. You know, like, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of very, very poor Cubans and then a lot of, like, high living. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's, you know, that was the fuel for the revolution. It was an incredibly corrupt place. Very, very rich at the top, very poor at the bottom. Um, it's not like you were asking about Yoani Sanchez or like dissident bloggers or you just wanted to know about a really crazy sex show and the guy who did it. Yeah. But having a massively endowed black guy who was the star attraction for visiting Americans was actually all about the politics. I mean, that's, that's, there's a lot about the revolution in there. You know, it's, it's not sexual, it's political. Right, this this one person reflected all of the things that at that time, you know, Fidel was rebelling against, really. You know, corruption, indulgence, ugly Americans. People who grew up at that time were reminded constantly that this was a shameful part of their history. And uh, I don't think people were very inclined to revisit it. But Alfredo and others that we met were actually increasingly inclined to revisit it because I think they were realizing that the changes that were happening and are still happening in Cuba are not reversible and they're going to have to like revisit that past to better understand it. One thing that kept coming up in conversations with Cubans was, you know, what does it mean as tourism opens up and the economy opens up to American investment? Like, is it going to be like a return to that period of time? Or is it going to be managed somehow differently? And I think for Alfredo and others, it's an important part of history to understand as they kind of plan and prepare for everything that's coming next. Well, it's also crazy because what we're talking about, 2015, 25 years after the special period began. I know when I was down there in, in 99, for example, like prostitution was out of control. You couldn't walk down the street without being propositioned a lot. And uh, and there were cops who were also there, like, trying to check out who was walking up to foreigners and check their IDs and all of that. You know, they understand the capacity, I guess, for Cuba to end up as the brothel of the Caribbean yeah. again. Right. Um, so just ignoring that history doesn't mean that there won't be, you know, that it won't come back, I yeah. guess. Yeah. So you come back to New York, yeah, and you're like, well, 
shit. Mm-hmm. It just kind of, you had some podiatry, you, yeah. but nothing concrete about who this guy was. Didn't, never found the photo you were looking for, uh, kind of official records. Um, but what what happened after that? After the 10 days, like we, we only had like a very, we had like a great kind of yarn to tell people um, over dinner or something, but we didn't have a concrete story yet. What's the end of the story? Like, where does this story go? Like, we had, you know, we had the specific narrative of Mike and I trying to find Superman, and we had, like, some great context about the 50s and the changes now, but we didn't, we hadn't, we had some names that we didn't know were true. We had a few kind of anecdotes about the guy. Um, You know, we had, we knew his apartment. We knew, we found the location of the Shanghai, but we didn't really have, like, the thing that was going to, tie it together as a story hmm god I guess we could say the same thing about this podcast well I'll how are we gonna <laughs> end this thing we almost like dropped it like I didn't it, months went by and I don't know what it was that reminded me of this but there there was a book that was written called Havana Nights and in the book uh, there's a story about a mob lawyer named Frank Regano who supposedly filmed Superman. Like, he was down there, and uh, he was with uh, a mobster named Santos Travacante. And Regano was, like, an amateur filmmaker. He had a camera. And he heard of the Superman show, and Travacante managed to arrange a private show. So Regano watches the show, and this is chronicled in the book, he watches the show and then asks if he can film a second show. So Superman and the woman he was performing with do a second show, and Regano filmed it. And it must have been Alfredo, but it could have been somebody else who told me that that video may still exist um, and that somebody in his family might have it. So I heard that he, you know, his, he had a son, and his son was a lawyer in Tampa. And sure enough, like online, there's this you know, law firm. It's Frank Regano's son. Mob lawyer? No, he's not a mob lawyer. He's just a, you know, he's a regular old lawyer. And um, I called, in the book, uh, in Frank Regano's book, he's called, Superman's called El Toro. And so I said, just gave it out to him. I'm like, we're doing the story on this guy that your dad may have made a video about. His name's El Toro. And I heard that you may still have a copy of this film. And he kind of laughs and he's like, yeah, I got it. I'll dig it up and get you a copy. And he also um, gave me the number of his mother, who uh, Frank Gano was, I think, second wife, maybe, who um, who knew a lot of these people, right? Knew a lot of the mobsters that he worked with. And so I did an interview with her, and she was just like this really lovely woman um, who told some stories about meeting uh, Traficante and, and other, you know, mobsters back in, in Florida back in the day. And she says that she knew, or uh, she had heard through Santos what had happened to Superman. According to... Travacante's story. After the revolution, Superman had fled from Cuba to Mexico City, hoping to get into the States. And at some point in Mexico City, he had a falling out with a jealous lover, and the lover killed him. Superman had met his end in Mexico City, murdered by a jealous lover. A little while passed, and eventually uh, Frank Regano's son uh, made a video, and his uh, assistant sent me an email one day saying the video's ready, and there was a link to it. He'd put it up online. Me and Mike met up at his apartment, poured a couple whiskeys, 
and put on the video. This video is, the, as far as I know, it's the only existing, you know, video or photographic evidence of, of Superman. It's essentially just like a very dated porn. Uh, it's black and white, you know, kind of flickers. Uh, they had put it to some really bizarre soundtrack that didn't fit. And it's just um, maybe 40-some-year-old black man and a white woman uh, performing different sex acts. And there's another article um, where a journalist meets him and describes him as being like very kind of fatigued and just like world weary. And I guess that's when Mike and I like talked about what Superman was like, like that's how we kind of pictured him as being like a sad, a sad figure. It was a weird thing. Like it felt like we knew that that was the end of the story, you know, like that we kind of like had found something to prove that this guy existed, like our our weird journey had led us to some five-minute porn movie filmed by a mob lawyer. Felt kind of sad, like the whole thing, earlier I was describing like my kind of idea of what this was like, and it's like this lavish performance, a man comes out, like the audience cheers and he opens his cape, and but this was just like, it was just sex, you know? It was like sex for show that they were getting paid for. I like how much it didn't work out also. Right. You know, I like the fact and and that at the end of the day, as, as you say, like, maybe he's just a man with the machete, you know, like <laughs> right. maybe uh, and and not but not knowing too much, not having found out too much about him strikes me as kind of beautiful cuz that is that I don't know, that's what I love about Cuba. That's why Cuba still has that's like the main card that Cuba still has to play, like the mystery card. Yeah. People yeah. People just don't know that place. Yeah. That is an island that's never going to show you too much leg, you know. Right. The trip is produced and edited by Josie Holtzman. Original theme music by Dan the Automator. Additional music in this episode by Cuban legend Kelvis Ochoa, with sound design by Josie Holtzman. Our podcast artwork is by the incredible Cuban-American artist, Adele Rodriguez. Special thanks to Mitch Moxley for sitting down with us and pushing the limits of phallic euphemisms. If you want to check out the original article that inspired this podcast, head to thetrip.fm. This week on Roads and Kingdoms, check out our city guide to Tokyo. We have a franchise in every city guide called GTFO. It tells you how to get the fuck out of town. For Tokyo, it's GTFO to Manazaru, on the Japanese Riviera. Give it a look. Next time on the trip, 
talking to Saba Imtiaz about the fast food that took over Pakistan. It was hysterical, like the response. I mean, they had to call in the police because there were so many people who would jam into a KFC. is not very big. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and you've been listening to The Trip. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.